Thank you, everyone. I appreciate you coming. Um, how many of you um, are at Pain Week for the first time? Oh, wow. Okay, great. How many of you have been here before? Okay, good. Um, anybody come to this talk before? One. Okay. <laughs> I'm watching you, by the way. <laughs> um, so... Um, this is what we think of as a foundational talk and part of one of the building blocks for getting to the outcomes that you want to get to. Um, this is a field, as you know, that has become increasingly controversial, increasingly complex, uh, filled with quite a few uh, uh, potholes. Um, and so there is a lot of scrutiny about the care of patients and what we do with them. And we have a tremendous amount of choices uh, in terms of how to treat patients. A tremendous number of different programs of multidisciplinary or multimodal care. I'm not going to talk to you about really any of that. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about uh, the first step, which is assessment and the importance of that as your foundation for thinking about what's wrong with the patient and how that will then drive your treatment. So I have nothing to disclose. Um, these are our objectives today. Uh, really the issue here is thinking about doing this uh, not in any particular specialized or different way. Um, I don't want you to get caught up in the sense of, well, this is a chronic pain evaluation versus a cardiac evaluation. The, the basic structure of interviewing and examining a patient and trying to be as comprehensive as possible is the same, no matter who you're seeing. And so while I may take you through some very concrete steps or sections, um, this is what you've all been taught. This is what you've been doing. Um, this is what you do intuitively uh, without really thinking about it in most other settings. It, it is the more difficult and challenging patients where we find ourselves reverting to basics and trying to make sure that we don't miss anything um, because we're not quite as comfortable. I will just remind you that this is a huge problem. Um, if, if you don't know that, you've probably been in a coma, um, and I'm glad you're back. Uh, so more and more people with pain, more and more people with chronic pain, um, more and more people seeking disability, litigation, health care for pain. Uh, I was talking to a, a workman's comp medical director for the Midwest um, the other day, and he was saying to me that, 10 to 20 years ago, uh, the high-cost user case, 80% uh, of those were spinal cord injuries, amputations, severe trauma, and physical disability. Today, in 2016, 80% of those high-cost using cases are chronic pain conditions. So you can see the shift that's occurred within our society um, in part due to improvements in work, worker safety and occupational medicine, uh, but also in part a number of other societal factors and our difficulty with being able to look and do the objective test and make a firm diagnosis. And so that is part of the challenge here is that these are not straightforward symptoms. These are not straightforward diagnoses. These are complicated experiences, hence the need for a more comprehensive treatment. Uh, you know that these patients are disabled and dysfunctional and in all domains of their life. Uh, patients with chronic pain have some of the lowest rated quality of life uh, on any of the standardized instruments uh, that, we, that we look at population-based studies with. Um, these are folks that are using more health care than the average person, as I mentioned. Um, and yet, there is such a lack of standardization in the treatment of these patients um, that you can find almost anything. And patients are doing almost anything. Um, 
Years ago, somebody was admitted to our inpatient program and asked me if we, at the end of their uh, interview, uh, if we would be continuing their treatments. Um, and I said, well, you know, as I mentioned, we'll be starting off where you are, but in an attempt to help you become more functional, we're going to need to make some changes. And he said, no, no, I, under I understand that. I I my IV therapy. And he said, well, maybe I missed something. I what are you getting IV therapy for? Um, and, and he said, my pain. And I said, what kind of IV therapy are you getting? And he said, well, I go to my doctor three times a week, uh, and I have to pay out of pocket because this isn't covered by insurance. It's, a, it's $100 a treatment, um, and I get an IV infusion. And I said, I, I'm getting that. Of what? <laughs> Hydrogen peroxide. I said, excuse me? And he said, well, you know, I have fibromyalgia. And so my doctor explained to me that my immune system is being constantly drained by the fragments of, of the bacteria and other uh, toxins that are causing this condition. And uh, right on is right. Um, I, I had actually heard of this theory, so now I was kind of on board. Um, and he said, you know, you, you know how hydrogen peroxide works. You pour it on things like that, and it chews them up. And I said, yeah, it's cool. Um, he said, you do understand that if you did that with your blood, it would just instantly coagulate. And so, and he looked at me kind of puzzled, and I said, and, and also when you put hydrogen peroxide in, in water, which is what IV fluid is, you essentially get more water and oxygen. And so you're really just getting bags of fluid. And he looked at me and said with just this disdain, it's clear that Hopkins is not state-of-the-art. I'm leaving. <laughs> he checked out. So it is true that interdisciplinary rehab programs are effective and they work well for patients, but the patient's got to come. And the patient's got to be able to, number one, to get there and get it paid for. But also, um, they just at least have to give it a try. And when you're up against beliefs like this that are fueled by interesting theories and sham practitioners, you know, you can see what we're up against. Um, part of the reason why this occurs is that because we are so inadequately trained. Um, most of us have... When we were going through school, uh, whether it was medical school or, or some other professional school or our postgraduate training, we didn't get any specialized knowledge about pain management or even uh, pain treatments besides a little bit on opioid pharmacology, um, which was completely out of context. Uh, even today, um, the average practitioner says, I, I don't have the education, I don't have the knowledge base, and I'm really uncomfortable doing this. And when I do kind of mentoring-based educational programs, the most common question I get is, I've got all these people on these treatments that I don't really understand or, or I, they were inherited, so to speak, when I came to this practice, and I don't know how to make a change. So... And they don't know what the alternatives are, hence they have nothing to change to. So we've got some work to do. Um, there is a drive to increase the number of hours um, of education. There are uh, postgraduate and, and now licensing requirements in certain states to try to push some of this education into people. Um, but fundamentally, they have to be interested in it, and they have to see its value, and they have to be willing to give up doing something else in its place. Um, nobody wants to take anything out of a medical school curriculum right now, despite how the world has changed. Um, so we have to figure out how to do that. Um, you know the definitions of pain. Um, they, here's the, the general multidisciplinary quote, um, basically does not say much to you other than it's a multidisciplinary experience, a multi-sensory experience, a multi-domain experience. You know, term it however you want. Um, and then when you look at acute pain and chronic pain definitions, um, they're worthless Be because they, they all focus on time. 
and severity and impairment. And yet, in some way, those things are very relevant and in other ways are completely irrelevant. Um, There is a qualitative difference between the acute pain of injury or trauma and someone who's had a chronic low back pain syndrome for 15 years and is disabled by it and involved in litigation and thinking about having a fifth surgery. It's just not the same, and it's not just a time criteria. And so here you see, again, another quote where people are trying to make this point that in some way we would like to communicate to everybody that when you're seeing someone with chronic pain, uh, there more more than likely is something going on. It's, It's rare that you see people just with no underlying pathology at all. Um, they're there, but, but not in huge numbers. And yet, how do we get to the point where we are more sophisticated in our formulation of patients about all the different pain generators, all the different stressors, all the different factors that are perhaps a barrier to treatment or worsening their disability or increasing their distress? And here you see the complexity of this is that in just this short list, all of these things you're supposed to be taking into account. And as you begin to look at those and you begin to think about the things that aren't on the list and say, well, what about this and what about that? Well, I'm sure it's important. And yet, how do you get all of that done? One thing I would remind you about when it comes to the issue of time is You don't have to do all of this on the very first visit. More than likely, you are going to encounter this person, and unless they just absolutely hate you or you throw them out of your practice for some reason, they're going to be with you for a while. Keep in mind that in the average general medical office, if you walk through the door with one of the top ten physical symptoms, pain, dizziness, fatigue, insomnia, and all the rest, the likelihood that you'll be able to tell the person why they have that symptom is about, on average, 20%. And the likelihood that that person will still have that complaint a year later is 50%. So just by virtue of coming to see you, it's a coin flip. You're going you're gonna to see that person again and you're more than likely going to be frustrated, and they're going to be frustrated because you're not going to be able to give them the answer. You're not going to cure them. You're going to have to help them manage and be more functional. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one one of the main hurdles is there's no objective test. There's no straightforward way of saying, you know, congratulations, you don't have diabetes. Oh, I'm sorry, you do. And so what do you have? Um, You've got your knowledge and your skills as a diagnostician, and you've got an interview and a physical exam. And you have to try to elicit from the patient all of that information that's going to help you. Because the gold standard really is somebody's self-report. And because the self-report has its limitations both from your perspective and the patient's, you're going to look for other sources of information. The most helpful of which is going to be what what in psychiatry we refer to as the collateral informant. Who else can give us some history and tell us what's going on? Um, Because many of the patients we see in psychiatry can't provide you a history for one reason or another. Well, the same thing is true here. It's helpful to have the records from somebody else, a family member, a friend, anybody, employer, records, from whatever source you can get, because they will help paint a more complete picture. Really, in this domain, the, the issue of vital signs or physiologic measures is not going to make one whit a difference. Um, again, years ago, we had a patient on our service who had a conversion disorder and uh, was paralyzed in his arm and numb in his uh, upper extremity as well. 
And so uh, one of the neurosurgeons came in and to see the guy uh, um, and said, yep, uh, it's, it's definitely a conversion disorder. And um, how are you going to treat this kid? And so we talked about what we would, were going to do. And he said, <clears throat> well, we're doing a little experiment with capsaicin, and um, I think I could really you know, take care of this right away. Um, could, could we enroll him in our study? And I said, well, I suppose so. Uh, that would be okay with me if it's okay with him. I'm not sure what he's going to add to your study. But, um, and so they did that. And, and then they said to him, you know, uh, unbeknownst to me, we're going to give you this injection, and it's going to flush out your nervous system and get you working again. And so they injected this kid with capsaicin multiple times. And from the description of the people that were in the room, this kid's face was flushed red, he was sweating, and he didn't bat an eye. He didn't, he didn't say, ow, he, didn't. he just basically sat there and said, I don't feel anything. My arm's still paralyzed and numb. And the way we think about conversion disorders, it's a disorder of belief. And so, you, once again, you see the power of belief, and no amount of charlatry is going to overcome that. It's going to be working through all of the issues. And this kid was enmeshed in a very small town that was divided about his problem, half of them thinking he was a, a malingerer and scamming them, and the other half thinking that he was uh, a, a damaged individual who had been forsaken by health care. There was no possible way that this kid could go home well or sick. I mean, it was a disaster for him in that sense. So what about the assessment? These are the basic uh, pieces that you've got to be thinking about, uh, a very detailed history. Um, it is important to do a physical exam. There is a role uh, in select cases for diagnostic studies. Um, but then there's the formulation side of it. What do you think is actually going on? And what do you think is causing the problem? And how would you put the story together to explain this besides saying little bits of bacteria are constantly draining your immune system? <clears throat> So, when you get into some of the specifics of the assessment, remember your, your goal for treatment is ultimately going to be returning these people to a degree of functionality that they don't have. And as long as people are able to do what they want to do, um, they can tolerate all kinds of things. And it's most of us who are at midlife or beyond are, are not perfect anymore. Um, we are suffering from something. We are overcoming something every minute. And, but as long as I can get up here and do this, you know, I can probably ignore the other problems that are pushing on me. So that's what we're after. Um, one of the things that really plays a huge role in, in chronic illness are the psychological aspects of it. What does it mean to be sick? Do you have a comorbid major depression or anxiety disorder that needs its own treatment? Have you developed an addiction to the treatments that you've been given or that you've entered into healthcare as a way to supply a source for that addiction? What other life stressors do you have? What other behaviors are you uh, trying to overcome um, so that you can be more functional? And who's suing you, or who are you suing, and how much money is involved, and what are they telling you about what's going on. <clears throat> At a very basic level, just a simple medication history is, is worth spending some extra time on. What have you taken before? Everything. Nothing works but this. Okay, great. Let's go on from there. No, no, tell me what you've actually taken. I don't remember. I don't have any. Well, have you lived in the same place for the last 10 years? Yep. How many pharmacies have you gone to? Two. Okay, let's call them up and get a printout. Or let's get the records for who is taking care of you. Or maybe I can go through a list of them and you tell me whether you've taken them or you haven't. At least you're making some progress. Um, and you can get a little bit more of a handle on, well, look at how many things you haven't taken. 
A lot. And, and there's some optimism and hope in that. So everybody likes mnemonics. I hate mnemonics. I put them in here for those of you who love them. Um, the reason I hate mnemonics is I can never remember them. Um, I can remember the mnemonic. I mean, who, can't re- who, who could forget hamster, for God's sakes? Um, but, you know, stare at that for 30 seconds and then try to recreate the, the, the individual items for, for each of those letters. You know, I won't be able to do it. Um, maybe you can. Um, but it does make the point that, look, there are these basic fields that we're trying to fill in. And they all serve a purpose. They, they force you to collect stuff and make sure not you haven't missed anything. They force you to think about the case from a slightly different perspective and not just get mired in the same old thing. And they force you to think about what really is going on. What's different between John Doe and Susan Jones? And therefore, why is my treatment different? And if it isn't, should it be? And how am I going to explain this to a payer, a reviewer, a regulator, a DEA agent? Another mnemonic for the history of present illness. Um, Remember, the history of present illness, the chief complaint, no matter what it is, you want to know what is going on around that. So where is it? How long have you had it? When did it start? How would you describe it? What characteristics does it have? How severe is it? What, what's your goal? Do you want it gone because, you know, I, I don't want that anymore? Or do you just want it less or more controllable? What makes it worse? What makes it better? And then what else is going on around it that you associate with it? And I almost always ask patients, what do you think is going on? What do you think is wrong with you? What's your private theory? Um, because it's interesting what will come out, and it, it helps to give the patient the sense of, you really are interested, and they can tell you stuff and not have to be embarrassed by it or not have to think that you're going to criticize them um, or poo-poo them in some way. And occasionally they're right, by the way. All right, so here is the classic pain rating scale. And we're all forced to use these in some way. You can see that there are variations on the theme. Some are more simple, some are more complex. Some actually combine all of these things, um, like this. And yet, how much information do you really get out of this? Um, Not a lot, um, in in my opinion. Um, If any of you have ever been in pain and been asked to rate it, you, you do realize how ridiculous and uh, an exercise that is, um, and so it it matters to any one individual because you know some people's two is another person's eight, and you would like to see the ratings trending in the right direction, and particularly if you're doing something that makes sense, and you will reassure you that maybe it really is working. But you know, what do you do when you're on my service and somebody checks twelve? What does that mean? Um, and <clears throat> what do you do when somebody says, I checked a seven, and I know at Johns Hopkins that a seven is a pain emergency, so what, what are you going to do for me? Probably not much in that scenario other than say, we've, we've evaluated you. Um, but you can see that at At its best, it's a conversation starter. What's your pain level? Okay, let's go from there. Can you fill that out for me? Can you describe the experience? And then as you're going through this, one of the things you should be thinking about is, well, how can I begin to kind of narrow the process? And how can I begin as I hear the story and I do the exam to think about Oh, yeah, this is a classic neuropathic pain condition. This is more of a chronic inflammation or nociceptive condition. This seems to be a wastebasket. I don't know what's going on. Um, Maybe it's mixed. Maybe it's what we refer to now as central sensitization. 
you'll see listed up here kind of the prototypes of each of these little bubbles. And yes, it's true, if you only have basically two categories and one in the middle, you know that your field is struggling. Struggling to make sense of these conditions and struggling to figure out, well, you know, how can we drive treatment if this is the best we can do? Now, it's true, there's a foundation under here of a whole bunch of basic science and a lot of pathophysiology, and you heard uh, a lecture earlier about some of that if you're in this room, and there are other talks here about that science, and it's good science, and it's helpful, and it does link up to some of the pharmacology that we have available to us. Um, and so when you move into the physical examination, um, it is important to do it because, once again, things are missed when we approach patients in stereotypic and stigmatizing ways. You're a chronic pain patient. You're a low back pain patient. You're a diabetic. Well, there's all kinds of differences, right? And so if you find yourself doing that, you are not being as complete as you could be. You don't know the case as well as you might, and you will undoubtedly miss stuff. Now, there are certainly times, and we live our whole life based on efficiencies of pattern recognition. Oh yeah, I've seen this before, this is this, this is how it goes, I treat it, person gets better, boom, I move on to the next success, right? And so, what do you know about shortcuts? You know, they're efficient, they offer an economy, but they're prone to errors, because they can't accommodate the outlier and the unexpected. And so routinely and unfortunately, when we admit people to our inpatient program, which is supposed to be really all about rehabilitation and, and getting people functional again, knowing what's wrong with them, we work people up and we find stuff that's been completely missed and has been thought to be irrelevant. And so the person with chronic abdominal pain who had a hematocrit of 22 that had been in place for years diligently checked every six months, gradually winding down. And we do the endoscopy, a simple test, but not for a psychiatrist. Um, and the person had metastatic esophageal cancer. And, and now I could give you a hundred other examples of things like that. So it does pay to work people up. It does pay to understand what's going on, and to be as comprehensive as possible because much of what we're dealing with in chronic illness really is outside of that specific area or that specific complaint. It's in a larger context. Um, it is true that when you do the physical, oftentimes you will pick up on stuff. When I was a fellow, I was doing a, an examination of a patient, and uh, I was taking the history. I said, have you had any surgeries? Nope. Okay. Doing the physical exam as I'm looking in their ears, I said, is this a scar on your head? Yeah. I said, how did that happen? Did you fall down? Were you in an accident? Oh, no, that was when I had my brain surgery. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I guess you didn't have any surgery. But... You know, so you 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 got to look for things. You got to find things. When you do find them, you further the conversation, and then you get a little bit closer to the bullseye. Um, you find other comorbidities, um, and you know, here's this quote by Osler or or somebody uh, like Osler. Um, you never really you hear all these things attributed to Osler, and I'm at Hopkins, so Osler's everywhere, and. Uh, you know, you're not really sure whether he said that or not, but, uh, but everybody says, well, he probably said it, so we'll take credit for it. Um, all right, what about the psychological assessment? So I am a psychiatrist, after all, and, and it is true that these individuals do have very high rates of psychiatric disorders. Um, it's not a judgment or an indictment. It's just a fact. Um, you see people with high rates of major depression that have chronic pain. 
you see people with major depression who have high rates of pain complaints. There's a growing literature now that shows if you have a major depressive disorder, that it increases the likelihood of developing a new chronic pain condition two to three times above that than if you don't have a major depressive disorder. And that risk conveys out beyond 10 years into the future. So you just can't get away from it. Also, to have any kind of chronic suffering and chronic disease that needs management and has surgeries involved and medications involved and disability forms and litigation, you can't tell me that's not going to have a psychological impact or that that's not going to be in the realm of meaningful to the patient. So it's a little different than some more straightforward chronic disease management strategies. Um, there are screening tools. There's a gazillion of them. There are more detailed scales and assessments that you can give people. Um, you just have to think about what you're expecting those scales and screens to do for you. Everybody loves the PHQ-9 right now, having a big love affair with that. And everybody now likes the PHQ-8 because nobody wants to ask the suicide question on the PHQ-9 because they don't know what to do with it when somebody says yes. And then everybody uh, thinks, well, maybe we could do it with just two questions. So there's the PHQ-Q, or two. Um, and there's a psychologist in our department who likes to say, you know, there has been some validation of asking people just one question that correlates with having a psychiatric problem, and that is, are you a nervous person? So probably all of us are psychiatrically ill. But the point is, if you look at the positive predictive value of the PHQ-9 under the best of circumstances, it's about 35% accurate. And the, positive, the negative predictive value is also about 35%. So if you apply that to having breast cancer, would you really hang your hat on a test like that? No. You, you would be pretty skeptical. And so most of the time what these scales do in, in the psychiatric domain is they find cases for you. They, they find people that are emotionally distressed or having some kind of trouble, but then it's up to you to actually make the diagnosis and figure out what's going on, not just circle the scale. There are some warning signs. Uh, if people are talking about suicide in, in the domain of chronic pain, that's abnormal. All right, There are people that think it's normal and tell you it's normal. It's not. You should not be talking about killing yourself. That's not good no matter what your circumstances are. And so if somebody is telling you that, you should be thinking about what's going on. Um, some of these other items, they're all essentially signs that people are not doing well and that you should be looking harder and looking deeper to figure out, okay, is there a major depression? Is there an eating disorder? Is there a substance abuse problem? Is there something else going on? Is somebody being abused? Does somebody have a personality disorder? Um, the, the list is long, but not as difficult to sort through as you might think. So a, a couple of classic uh, things to think about is the catastrophizer. You all know this person. I'm sure every one of us has a friend like this, um, if not a patient. Um, but this is the person where they really overreact to the smallest of stimuli. And they assume it to be the mountain of disaster. And you see these kind of typical features of dramatic response, unpredictable response, um, saying it's going to be horrible, saying there's nothing they can do or that you can do, but demanding help and spiraling out of control in front of your eyes. That's the exaggerated form of it, but, but that's fundamentally what is going on. These are people who are not coping well. And there's a tremendous amount of research to show that if you help people with this, despite your initial reaction of, ugh, get away from me, um, 
they really can get better. There are lots of reasons why people do this, but simple education, simple supports, more sophisticated psychotherapies can reduce the amount of catastrophizing that somebody engages in dramatically because it's all about engaging them and helping them to understand what's going on and to cope with that. Kinesiophobia is really a fear of movement. This is something that happens in, in a lot of patients with chronic pain that you can see over time this increase in what's referred to as fear and avoidance. If I do that, I hurt more, so therefore I'm not going to do it. Every time I try to do something, I'm laid up for days. I must be hurting myself worse. I'm falling apart. My spine's going to break. I better not do that. I need to be comfortable. I need to be more, have better pain control. And then I'll try to rehabilitate myself. And no, it's exactly the opposite. Behavior first, feeling second. So these are the folks that require a lot of desensitization and hands-on active physical therapy to move through movements and activities and simple exercises so that they can see that a disaster doesn't happen and that they actually are starting to get a little better and a little better and a little better. And then there's the chemical coping issue. You know, people take medicines for lots of different reasons. And not everybody who's taking medicine or even taking medication inappropriately has a true addiction. In fact, the vast majority of people that come to our inpatient program who are on large quantities of opioids and benzodiazepines and muscle relaxants and sleeping pills and stimulants and all the things that I would say should be just avoided as much as possible when you're not doing well, well, they're not abusing or taking those things for drug effect. It's a complicated thought process and belief system that they need these medicines. And if they don't get them, that they're going to be worse. And so how could you possibly think about taking them away? It just doesn't make sense to them. And so it's a whole paradigm shift of trying to explain to them, less is more for you and to try and understand what it is that they're actually coping with and what it is that these medicines are actually doing for them because they're doing lots of different things from helping them go to sleep to getting their husband to leave them alone and to convey to their employer that they have a legitimate problem and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The cage questions, you've all heard of the cage questions for alcoholism. Um, if I ask you to recite all of those, um, you might have trouble. Um, the, each letter makes a difference um, and, and distinguishes the question. Um, have you ever felt you should cut down on drinking? Have people annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? Have you ever felt bad or guilty about your drinking? Have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning to steady your nerves or get rid of a hangover? In other words, an eye-opener. Now, you can go through those questions pretty quickly. And you'll be amazed at what people say to you. And people will actually tell you that, yes, they have, they're positive for these questions. And the vast majority of people will discuss their drug history and their sexual history and some of their crazy hobbies and trouble that they've gotten into if you just ask them. And you appear interested and you think it's relevant. Um, and if they ask you, why are you asking me this stuff, you have to be able to explain that it helps you to have a fuller picture of what they're going through and what they're struggling with, and it will help you to be able to treat them more specifically. Um, and it's rare that somebody will say, I'm not talking about that. So ask. Um, again, there are these other more broad questionnaires. And in general, as you begin to think about all these questionnaires and adding them in and making your practice and your assessment grand and glorious, then you have to think about, well, does anybody have the time to really take all these? And who's going to score them? And how are you going to interpret that score? And what are you going to do with all this stuff? And if you collect it all and you don't look at it or do anything with it, undoubtedly somebody's going to come by and say, you screwed up big time because you missed this. 
So maybe you shouldn't do all of these things. And then people will say, well, why don't you have standard screening questionnaires? You're clearly in goof. So you have to be able to have a rationale. This is why I do this. This is what I take care of. This is how I back it up. This is how I follow it. This is how I document it. May not be perfect, but as long as it hangs together as a coherent rationale, nobody is expecting you to be perfect. They're expecting you to be trying to be good and to do the right thing in a way that makes sense. <coughs> the, the brief pain inventory is perhaps the one, the one questionnaire I kind of like um, because it's two pages, and it's basically Likert scales, 0 to 10. Rate your pain for me under various circumstances. How much pain relief are you getting from the treatments? Little figure of where's the pain in your body? Um, and then a bunch of functional related questions. How much does pain interfere with the following things? And it takes about five seconds to look at it. And you can get a sense of this person's really not doing well. This person's doing pretty good. And, and the patient has a sense that there is a chronicle here and you can put them all together in the chart and leaf through them and see the progress over time. What about diagnostic tests? There's no magic test for anything, it seems. Um, you all know that if we all had an MRI scan of our back right now, a bunch of us would have disease and a bunch of us wouldn't. And there would be no correlation between how many of us have back pain and how many of us don't. On the other hand, if I examined you and took a history from you and it sounded like you had radicular back pain that occurred after a particular exertion and now you have pain radiating down a particular dermatome, do an MRI and you've got a disc in that area, it all kind of hangs together. So the test helps to confirm for me what I think I already know <clears throat> and guide my treatment or maybe I do a test in a circumstance where I think I want to rule out this horrible thing because there's a chance the person might have it. You don't want to get the test when you say, well, I don't have a clue what's going on, so I think I'll just order a bunch of stuff. Because statistically speaking, you order 11 tests, one of them will be abnormal. Now you've got an abnormal test, which you don't know if it's relevant or not. The main thing is to look at old records because much has been done before that the patient will distort, forget, not tell you about. Um, it's useful information. Um, there are some basic things that you should always be thinking about and because they're common uh, causes of problems. And then there's the aspect of reassessment. Um, if you start off with a good foundation, your reassessment becomes that much easier. But the reassessment is critical because things do change, not only because of what you're doing, but because of what the patient's doing and what's happening to them. Um, as you think about a care plan for people, it is important to have some kind of working diagnosis as specific as possible. You don't, again, have to be right, and it may change over time as you learn more about them, but at least go through the exercise. We talk to our residents all the time about, don't just say depression NOS, for God's sakes. What does that mean? Tell me you think they have an adjustment disorder. Tell me you think they're in bereavement. Tell me you think they have a major depression with psychotic features. You don't have to be right. You have to go through the exercise. And then think about how your initial treatment is going to play out. <clears throat> you ease people into things. You make sure that they stay on it. You try to understand their noncompliance. And you look for the benefits and the worsening of their condition and you make adjustments and you try to keep getting closer and closer to the perfect recipe and the bullseye of getting them well. <clears throat> you want to individualize things as much as possible. Um, you want to be thinking about the disability and the comorbidities, but you also want to use the simplest approach. We see onions in our field. People who come to us with layer upon layer upon layer of treatments. Well, why are you taking this? Well, because I had a side effect of that. Well, why were you taking that? Well, because that was helping me with this. But that was caused by your first medicine. Yeah, I know, but I really needed that. But, but you're a disabled mess. Yeah, I know. I guess I need something else. 
No, no, you don't. You need less. Peel away the layers of the onion and make sure you really know what is going on. <clears throat> when do you get help? Well, fundamentally, get help when you, when you have reached a point where you don't really know what's going on. It, it's hard to admit because we're all driven and it's built into us to think, I can figure this out. I can get this better. If I ask anybody else, it's a sign of weakness or stupidity. And damn it, I'm not going to do that. So swallow your pride. And if you don't know what's going on, ask somebody else, what do you think is going on? That is the fun of this field, really, is to talk with one another and discuss cases and say, what do you think? And oh, I didn't think of that. If some specialized treatment is needed, try to get it for the person. Um, if you can't reach the goal, if you're kind of running into a wall, how can you optimize or tweak this treatment? How can you get past that hurdle? You know, maybe you're just too close to it, and somebody else will look at it and say, oh, did you think about adding this, or did you think about dropping that? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, if you look down and one day you have somebody on huge amounts of opioids and other polypharmacy, and you think, uh-oh, how did I get here? Um, Maybe somebody else should look at that. Um, if the patient's doing well, it's hard to argue with success, but it's nice to have somebody else validate that success for you. If the patient's not doing well, you better figure out to do something different. And somebody may be able to help you with that. Um, if there's any evidence of opioid abuse or medication abuse, you, in this day and age, you really got to follow that up. Um, even if you convince yourself that it's not a problem and it's really not abuse, that's fine. But you got to do it. You can't just let that hang there. <clears throat> and, it, you know, if you just run out of ideas, there's always somebody who's got another idea, right? <laughs> if by virtue of just our field, there's always somebody who thinks they know it all, find them. Maybe they do. Um, all right, another mnemonic, the four A's. Uh, this is probably the only one I can actually remember. Um, <clears throat> when you're following up with people, you do want to know, is their pain any better, for God's sakes? It is, it is nice to know that. But you also want to know about the side effects of the treatment because they always are there. They're always there. It's just whether or not they're tolerable or they're not or they're dangerous or they're not. How is the person's function? What are you able to do now that you weren't able to do before? What do you want to do that you can't do? How are we going to get there? And then any kind of aberrant behavior, which might be related to opioid abuse or medications, addiction, all of that stuff, but it also might just be simple noncompliance. Fifty percent of us in this room are not following our physician's orders. Right? For whatever it is, whether it's a course of antibiotics or changing your lifestyle to manage diabetes or hypertension or whatever, We're, we just don't do it because it's hard. So you got to ask yourself, is the patient in that 50%? Are you really doing what I've asked you to do? Are you really following through on these things? What's the evidence that you are or you're not? It's there. And then you've got to talk to them about how can we get you to be a little bit better with all this stuff. I know it's complicated, but I know you can do it. There's all kinds of talk about the abuse of medications. There's plenty of people here that, uh, that are expert in that and many lectures devoted to it, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Again, there's a ton of risk tools. And all of them basically encapsulate an interview of asking people, what have you done? What have you gotten into trouble with? What would you do about it? What are you doing now? And who do you know and who in your family have had similar problems? Um, urine drug monitoring, it is not a panacea of risk management. It's another piece of information. There will be false positives, false negatives. There are good tests and bad tests, cheap tests and expensive tests. The bottom line is you have to know your lab and the test that you're doing so that you know how to interpret the results. And most of it is going to show up in the form of behaviors. Some behaviors, like these, 
are pretty obvious that hey, there's a major problem here. Somebody's forging my prescription. That's bad, right? Don't do that. Um, on the other hand, there are some that are perhaps less predictive or less serious and might be explained by other things. If you've ever tried to get a hold of your doctor on a Friday uh, for whatever reason, um, you know it's difficult. If you are running out of a prescription and you try to go to the CVS and get your refill one day early, you know that it can be a problem. And so if you've ever run into any of these barriers once in your life, it's one trial learning. That'll never happen to me again. And so how many times have your patient sat down and said to you, I've got a vacation coming up in three weeks. I need to figure out how to make sure I have my medication. Or you're going away? You're taking a vacation? Who's covering? How can I get a hold of you? What happens if X occurs? All right? It's just human nature. It's not necessarily addiction. <clears throat> so, again, the reassessment is critical. Think about what you're going to be looking for and asking about. Um, it will save you huge problems later. You know, the stuff that you're inclined to avoid and don't want to deal with and think is a pain in the neck and is upsetting, yeah, it is. It's not nearly as upsetting as when you ignore it and the wheels come off the cart six months later. Then you've got a huge mess to clean up. Um, you've seen this pretty much. Um, so, as I've laid it out for you, think about how you're going to do this. Think about your own practice. Think about the patient population you take care of. Think about who else works in your office and how they can be of help to you. Think about consultants that you have nearby or that you can get in touch with if you need to and who's going to help you put all of this together in a way that is doable. You know, it all has to be feasible in some way. And so you, you need to tailor things for your own world. Um, we all have EMRs now. Uh, some are better than others. A lot of this can get incorporated into it, and some can't. When we looked at the Hopkins Community Physicians Group, they all had the forms and the guidelines for chronic opioid management built into EPIC. 15% of people were compliant with the guidelines. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it's not there, it's not accessible. They don't know about it. They don't have the time to do it. They're overwhelmed. They need help. Um, so I'll just leave you with a reiteration of do what you always do. Do it well. Do it completely. Do it over time. And more than likely, things will go better. And you get to experience the thrill of getting people well. Uh, because as hopeless as these patients may seem to you at times, you really can get them there. And that's a huge kick. So... Thank you for coming. I wish you well. Enjoy the conference. <laughs>